Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in the 19th chapter, these gospel narratives uh, told by four different perspectives. They all tell some of the same stories, some of the same accounts, uh, but Luke will sometimes tell us things we didn't hear somewhere else. And Luke 19 is a neat story. In fact, as a little child, many of us, Sunday schools or whatever, would sing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. How many of you know that song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, this is a kid's favorite part because you stop singing and you almost yell it, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. Now, can you imagine your whole life and beyond, beyond your whole life, for thousands of years, you are known as the wee little man. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that I'm 5'10". That's, that's average height. They say they make office chairs for people that are 5'10". So I guess that makes me average. But I'm glad I'm not known as a wee little man. Now, my children, I have permission to talk about this from my wife and my children. My wife is five foot tall. She's not tall. Okay, She's in the category of short. And my daughters are short. They're hoping that they're just going to be taller than their mom. Um, and there's a couple we're not sure they're going to make it. <laughs> they're, they're pretty short. Most people think my third one, Reagan, they think that she's uh, like five or six and she's nine. And it's because she's just that short and, and she's very small. Um, my youngest is five and, and we've seen two-year-olds as tall as she is. Now those are taller two-year-olds, but you know what I mean. They feel short. My oldest is 13. She doesn't quite look like she's 13 because there are 13-year-olds. How many of you are 13? Any, any of you 13? Okay, yeah, you are much, I don't know if you noticed it, how, how much taller you are than she is, but it's, a, especially for a girl, I think it's very self-conscious, but I was short until my sophomore year of high school, and I think I grew like eight inches in one year, but Regardless, he's known as a short person, and I tell them it's not so bad to be short um, because when you're short, there's a lot of benefits. Now, you think about this. If you're in an airplane, there's hardly ever any room. But if you're short, there's more room for you than for most people, right? You, you don't worry about that 31 inches of leg room because you don't need the 31 inches. You're, you're in first class even when you're in economy, okay? And here's another thing that I think about because, I mean, we're – we're always trying to pack suitcases into that van, and, and, and every week I think I do it a different way, trying to find the best way to put them in there. But when you pack a suitcase, if you're short, you can put more clothes in the suitcase because your clothes are smaller, right? I, I've seen some big clothes, and I'm thinking, you know, if you folded certain people's, like, say, a double XL hoodie, you fold that thing up, and it's going to fill half a suitcase. But my daughters can put multiple hoodies in a suitcase, and there's still room. And I thought about this. If you're short enough, you may not even have to fold your clothes. You just lay them out lengthwise in that suitcase, and uh, you won't have the wrinkles that maybe other people deal with. I try to tell them this. Now, one, one time, my daughter, we were at a church, and there was a dessert table, and I got a dessert, and I had them get you know a small portion of dessert. And one of my daughters looked at me, and she said, Dad, why, you, why didn't you let us have that much? And she's looking at mine. I said, because I'm three times your body size. But when you go to a store, when you go to a restaurant, they don't look at you and say, yeah, you're on the small side. We're going to bring you the small portion. No, you get what everybody else gets. And so if you're smaller, you're kind of getting more. You're kind of getting more. That's what I try to tell them anyway. 
Um, and there's another thing. If you ever if you ever buy a blanket, I've noticed that blankets are, are you know, you, you, you look it up and it says 59 inches. Well, I am taller than 59 inches. And it really bothers me if I sit in a chair and I pull a blanket up to say here and my toes pop out the end. That, that really bothers me. That, that never happens to my family. It never happens to them. In fact, a small blanket is perfectly fine for them. So there are benefits to being short. But for Zacchaeus, uh, it didn't seem like he had very many benefits. But as the story goes, uh, as the story goes, we'll read in verse number one. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, there are more than one Jericho, just as like in America, there's more than one um, Aurora. There's another, you know, there's Auroras all over. There's usually small, there's Auroras in a bunch of states. Um, but there was more than one Jericho, but of this Jericho, we only know that it, he came one time. In verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, that's the purpose for which God gave us these, these nine verses about Zacchaeus. That's the purpose for which Jesus Christ came to the earth, was to seek and to save that which was lost. This was his response to the high priests, the religious leaders of that day, to the Pharisees, this was his response to them when, when they were saying, why are you, you're supposed to be a religious man, you're supposed to be a teacher, and why are you eating with people like this man who is a sinner? Because Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, the Lord, the, the God of the universe, the Son of God has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his purpose for coming, to meet them, to have a relationship with them. That's why Jesus came, is to have a relationship with us. I've been reading a book. Uh, it's supposed to help me to understand the book of Leviticus, and it is, you think about the book of Leviticus, it's not one of the most fun books to read, but my eyes are being open to the things that, that, that are in there. And one of those things is, in the book of Leviticus, we're told about the, the, the tabernacle that God wants us, that God wanted the Israelites to build so that they could worship him, right? And in that, in that tabernacle, you had a holy place, and you had a holy of holies. And that holy of holies was the place where they could meet with God and he says the prototype for that is the Garden of Eden because that is where God and man were together. That is where man walked and talked with God. That is where communion was. But sin is what separated man from that garden. And interestingly, Pastor, you might find this fascinating, the Bible tells us that God put cherubim outside the garden to protect them from the garden and to protect the garden from them because sin couldn't be allowed in that holy place anymore. And what is on the, the, the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. 
And you know that on that, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place that they had uh, stitched on there was cherubim. It was the only two times cherubim are mentioned in the Bible. And I think about that parallel because God has come because he wants to dwell with us. He wants to restore the relationship between God and man because God loves us. And so here he comes to Jericho for part of that purpose because he wants to reveal himself to the people there. And one of those people happens to be Zacchaeus. And God wanted a relationship with Zacchaeus. The Lord Jesus did. God wants a relationship with every human being, with every person. You might, you might say, well, who am I? I'm just, I'm just a person here in the middle of Illinois. And, and how did, God knows all of us. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. If God didn't know every single person and everything about that person, he'd be limited. And God is not limited. He is God. And so God wants a relationship with all of us. And anytime he reveals himself to us, he's saying, hey, I want you to know me more. And so here he comes. And Zacchaeus saw this as an opportunity. Now, we have opportunities all over life. Pastor said there's a lot of things going on in life. And, and there are a lot of opportunities. Tonight, you have taken the opportunity to come here. Um, there's opportunities that we have to do all kinds of things. Um, I have uh, um, an opportunity for my wife to go visit her sister in, uh, in December, and, and I'm, we're taking that opportunity so that she can visit her sister. Her sister turns 40 this year, and so she wants to help her celebrate that. But we, we take all kinds of opportunities. Well, Zacchaeus had an opportunity. Now, he had heard that Jesus was coming to town. Now, think about that. Here you are, just some person in Jesus' time. You don't know who he is. But you've heard about this man, this man who has made the blind to see, blind men that have been blind since they were born. You've heard that there were lepers that were maybe even losing fingers and hands. I don't know, but you knew they had leprosy, and they came to Jesus, and Jesus healed them, and now they were clean, and they were fine. I don't know. Maybe he restored their fingers. There were, there were lame men that had never walked ever before. And Jesus just said to them, take up your bed and walk. And they stood up and walked. You've heard these things. And maybe you heard that he fed 5,000 people the little boy's lunch. Maybe the rumor got out when Jesus had walked on the water. And, and maybe people started hearing about those kind of things. And so you are hearing this and you're saying, that, that person's coming to town? That person is going to be in my area? Well, I'm going to take the opportunity and go see them. And that's where he was. And notice that it says in verse 1, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. He wasn't there to stay, just passing through. Some opportunities that we have are passing opportunities. Once in a lifetime, never happen again. Now, I have not, I'm not in this category, but have any of you ever, ever shaken a president's hand, ever shaken a president of the United States, ever been in, in, the, in the presence of a president? No, okay, one, like in, in person? But right, they were right there in front of you. Yeah, see, I've not, I've not been that close. I've not been that, but, but you took the opportunity to be there or you just happened to be there? Right. Just took the same thing Zacchaeus said, a passing opportunity. And here's the thing. We all have an opportunity to come into a relationship with God. Now, Zacchaeus didn't know that's what was going to happen. But we don't know if that opportunity is just going to happen today. We don't know if that opportunity will ever come again. And we need to make sure that we capitalize on the opportunities that God gives us, that we take those opportunities. So he had the opportunity. It was a passing opportunity. No guarantees of a second chance. It was a public oppor opportunity. 
Jesus came to Jericho so that anyone in Jericho could come to him. It just so happened that Zacchaeus seemed to be the most eager. But anyone that wanted to could come see. I, I imagine there were some people that said, well, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I don't believe that he did any of those things that people say that he did. I don't believe that he's a spiritual teacher or a religious teacher or anything like that. I think he's a fraud. I'm sure there are people that said that, and they said, we're not going to go see. We're, we're not going to waste our time. You know, there are people like that today. That, that They won't investigate the Bible, but they're going to say, well, I know somebody one time that didn't, didn't, they said they believed the Bible and they weren't a good person, so I don't want anything to do with the Bible. Yeah, it doesn't invalidate the Bible. It just shows that that person was a hypocrite. And there's hypocrites everywhere. But it was a public opportunity, and that's what Jesus wants to give us. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God wants to give us rest. You know, that's what heaven is. It's an eternal rest. And God wants to give us that eternal rest. And so really, why am I preaching this? I'm preaching this because Jesus said he came to have a relationship, a relationship with every person. And maybe you feel a little bit like Zacchaeus tonight, that you took an opportunity to be here and, and you don't have a relationship with the Lord or you would like a better relationship with the Lord, a, a relationship with God, and you have that opportunity. It was a personal opportunity. Jesus came for the individual. You know, some, some have said that if you were the only sinner, that Jesus would have died for you. And that is true. That's how great his love is. I, I like to change that a little bit and say if Jesus had to die one time for every single person he would have come that many times to die for every single person because that's his love that's God's love you know we don't understand love outside of God if God never loved we never know what love is it's not something we made up it's something that comes from him God loves the world so much that he would give his only son so it was a public opportunity but you know what? It's a priceless opportunity. It says at the end of verse 6, he received him joyfully. And the truth is that I don't, I've never met a Christian. I've never met someone who's trusted Christ as their Savior who regretted it. Everyone has been thankful for it. Every person I've ever met, every person that I know that serves the Lord is glad that they serve the Lord. That's an interesting phenomenon as well, but that's because God is in that. But what else was it? Notice verse 2, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus who he was, and could not for the press, because he was of little stature. So there was an opportunity to see Jesus, but there were obstacles to see Jesus. There were obstacles, there was barriers in between that. Now, when I was growing up, I went to a, a church that uh, did a lot of activities for the young people. And for the teenagers, I remember one specific activity. We went out into somebody's woods, and the youth pastor and the youth workers had, had uh, put all these apparatuses up. And it was going to be a, uh, um, not a scavenger hunt, an obstacle course. And so we had to run this obstacle course, and I'm sure there was a younger person's category and an older person's category. And, and, and I remember one of, the, one of them was a rope, and you had to cross this gully by the rope. And if you didn't want to try it or if you couldn't make it, you had to add so many minutes to your time. And then you ran to the next thing, and there was a vine. I remember a vine. You had to climb so high on the vine, and there was a, a handkerchief or something tied so far up, and you had to touch that. And there was a zip line um, that, that you had to hang on to. You, you weren't strapped into it. You had to hang on to it, or, or you'd fall, and there was an embankment that you climb up. It was real steep, and all kinds of things. And, and I really enjoyed that. And I don't know if I had a good time or not uh, as far as, winning or anything but it was fun that's one of the one of the things I look back to as a fun time but those obstacles 
are there, yeah, they're there for fun, but they're there to slow you down because some of them can be very difficult. And these things are obstacles in his life that would slow him down. And let's look at a couple of them. Uh, first, he had physical, physical obstacles. He was short. So because he was short, he came and, and he couldn't see. Now, I remember going to an event with my parents one time. I remember just people everywhere. And I was little, but I remember sitting on my dad's shoulders so that I could see what was going on. I still don't remember what I was looking at, but I remember doing that kind of thing because I was small. But there's, a, there's an advantage sometimes when you're small that you can weave in and out of people, right? You just find those gaps. But the, it says that there was so many people that there was a press of people, and he couldn't get to the front. He couldn't find a way because everybody wanted to see Jesus. And you think about a parade. When there's a parade, you just get in line somewhere, and eventually uh, things will just keep passing by. But this wasn't a parade. This is just one person. This is just Jesus. So this was this mob of people everywhere Jesus was. And so Zacchaeus has said, I can't see this guy except this. Now, that's a physical obstacle, but, you know, there were some social obstacles. Notice verse 2 again. There was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. He was disliked. Okay, a publican. That would be today a tax collector. Now, in our country, we really don't have, well, we have IRS agents. We have a whole lot more than we, we did a, a year ago. And, uh, but we don't have to face them yet. But in other countries, you have to go to a building, and there will be a, someone in there that collects taxes. And I don't know if they show them their books. I'm not really sure how that is, but I've been in some of those countries where uh, I said, what's that building? And they said, that's where, the, that's where they collect the taxes. And uh, so in this case, you would have to present yourself to the, the publican, the tax collector, and, and he would tell you how much you owed. And sometimes... They would falsely accuse people and say, you owe $100 and you only owed $50. But what are you going to do about it? Because they can put you in jail. They can say, well, you're lying and you're going to jail. And what are you going to say to them? You can't say anything. And so they were accused of that. So nobody liked them. And who likes a tax collector anyway, right? Who likes somebody taking your money and you feel like, what are you doing for me? But the second thing is he's a chief of the publican. So he was in charge of them. So that, that puts him in a different category. But let's, let's ratchet that up a little bit. Okay, this is, this is in the Israel. This is Israel. But Rome is the one that is in control of Israel. So the Israelites feel like we should not be paying taxes to the Romans, but they're forcing us to do this. You remember the Pharisees and the chief priests asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we do that? Because some of them said, you shouldn't do this because we're, we're Israelites. We don't pay taxes to the Romans. So, but you needed to or they're going to throw you in jail. So take that and now add to the fact that Zacchaeus is not a Roman. He's a Jew. So here you have a Jew collecting taxes for the Romans. So he is an outcast in that sense because in their minds, he's a sellout. Oh, oh, so you're selling out to the Romans so you can make money what you're doing. You want to make money, so you're taking taxes from us as Jews. So you know the Jews didn't like him. No one liked this man because of his position, and he was rich, it says. Now, that shouldn't make people dislike you, but we should know that in our world and in their world alike, people are still people, and they're going to find a reason to dislike you. I, I have a friend, and, and he is well off, but I went with him to visit his neighbor because uh, he has a he has cows, and his neighbor has cows, and the fence in between is in really bad condition. And it's his neighbor's fence, and he wants to help fix the fence. And so he's going to the neighbor, and he says, I want you to go with me because this guy mistreats me every time I'm with him. 
And he says, I just want to see what we can do to get this fence fixed because his cows are coming to my field and my cows are going to his field and we're having a hard time getting them back and forth. And he's like, if we fix it, we won't have that problem. Understandable. I go over there and no doubt that man mistreats him the whole time. Yells at him. Yells at him, curses at him. And one of the things he cursed at him for is, you, you're so rich, you think you can do anything. And he just kind of looks at me like, this is what I deal with. And he's like, I'm just trying to help this guy with his fence. But this guy's mad at me because, you know, because he thinks I'm wealthier than he is. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, that guy that's angry is wealthier than I am. Should I yell at him because he's wealthy? You know, that, that's what we do, right? That's what people do. We, we find a reason to dislike somebody. And I'm sure that he was accused of cheating, and that's why you have the money that you have, and, and all kinds of things like that, that he was disliked. Sometimes we have social obstacles in life, don't we? All kinds of things that can get in our way socially that we think, man, this is holding me back. And sometimes uh, those social obstacles are an obstacle between us and the Lord makes it difficult for us. There's a lot of peer pressure, a lot of things that people might say that we might say, you know what, I don't want to commit that to God because what will people think? That's a social obstacle. And really, there shouldn't be another person between me and God. My relationship with God is more important. Heaven and hell are more important than what somebody else thinks. And one day when I stand before God, when I give account of my life in judgment, nobody else can be there. It doesn't matter what somebody else thinks. It matters what God thinks. And I need to make sure that I am right with God, regardless of what other people think. So he had social obstacles. He had physical obstacles. But uh, there was something else that was an obstacle to him, and it was a spiritual obstacle. Notice it says that he was rich. You say, well, you already talked about that. Yeah. Sometimes success can be an obstacle between you and God. You know, Jesus told the disciples that a rich man can hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And why is that? Because often rich people will look at the things that they have and say, why do I need anything more? Often a rich people will say, I don't, I don't need anything. So I've been to mission trips in fourth world countries, which is a thing, and I've been in second to first world countries. And the people that I find in third and fourth world countries, they are very open to listening to what you would say that God would have for them. Very open. It's very simple to go into a, a village somewhere and invite people to a service and you'll have 700 people come to your service. You just spend two days talking to people and they will show up. You open a Bible and you explain clearly what the Bible says about how, how God wants us to live and explain clearly what God wants to do with our lives, that, that he died for us, that he rose again to give us new life, that he wants to forgive us and, and change our lives. And you know what? They want to hear that because they look at their lives and say, yeah, we have a lot of needs. But I went to South America, and I went to places that probably none of us in this room would want to live in those houses. But you know what? They had big TVs in each one of these shacks, satellite dish on the, on the, on the roof. And uh, I asked somebody, I said, what do these people do? Because I see no businesses. I see no industry. I, I see nothing. I said, why are people here? What, what do they do for work? And the young man looked at me, and he said, they don't work. The government pays them to live here. You know, they don't have any needs because the government pays for all their needs, pays for everything. But it's, it's a sad existence. It's very dreary. These people don't do anything. You know, we would have a service. We, we would knock on every door in the village. We did this three different villages. We knocked on every door. Every person we saw, every person we could, we talked to, we'd invite them out. There's one radio station in each one of those villages, and this is, this is far, far, far from anywhere. 
hours from the nearest, three hours drive to the nearest ATM. That'll just tell you how far it is from, from civilization. So the, the radio station, it's the only radio station that they can hear. And they probably don't have internet, they just have satellite TV. So on the radio station, we had advertisements that would play, I think, every hour to know why we were there. There's one community building, and we're telling them, hey, we're going to have a service on this night, just like we did in the other places in third world countries, except we probably talked to more people. You know, we only had two people and three services ever come. Two people. And, and they were the people that we rented from. And I think that's the only reason they came, is they felt like, hey, this is the right thing to do because we're renting, they're renting from us. We should come. You know why? Because those people would literally tell us, we don't need that. We don't need what you have. Sometimes success in this life is a deterrent because we say, we don't need that. We don't need that. And he was a successful person. So maybe he would have thought, I don't need that. You know, there's some other obstacles that we have. Friends can be an obstacle. I preached at a camp several years ago. Now, actually, it was last year, and I told you a little bit the other night how these three young men, and they, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't let each other listen. You know, they wanted to make sure that as they sat there, their heads were down. They would let their hair hang over their face so that as if that was, like, preventing me from seeing them. But they were the only kids not listening. They, they sat there the whole time, and they would laugh, and they would joke and do all those kind of things, and they were trying to distract each other from listening, trying to keep each other from making decisions. Sometimes friends can be an obstacle. Sometimes family can be an obstacle. I told you the other day about that, that young man who came from Pakistan, and he knows if I trust Christ, if I believe the gospel, if I do anything other than Islam, then those people want to kill me. He didn't want anybody to tell, anybody to tell the other Pakistanis in Illinois that he had come to church because he's afraid of what they would do to him. That's an obstacle. That's a barrier between him making a decision for God and not making a decision for God. Sometimes our feelings are. Our feelings can get in the way. Well, I don't feel like doing this. Sometimes false beliefs can be in the way. When I was a young person, I went to a service. Um, it's just for teenagers. And I remember I sat on this side of the auditorium towards the back. And uh, I don't remember anything else other than what the preacher was saying. And he was saying what, what a person needed to do to have a relationship with God, to confess their sins, to admit they're sinners, to believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross. But he was saying things like, just because you've been in church your whole life doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you, uh, your, your mom tells you something doesn't mean you're saved. Just because uh, you've done this or that. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, well, look, I, I go to church and I, I memorize verses for a Bible program that our church does. So I must have been saved at some point. I, I thought, look, I'm here at teen camp. I'm here listening to preaching. I must be a Christian. I must be saved. I thought, well, my parents, my, my dad's a deacon in the church. I, I must have been saved. I literally went down this list and I thought, I must have been saved sometime in my life. But you know what? I could not come to a conclusion where there was a time in my life where I, I stopped and I talked to God in my heart and said, God, I know that I'm a sinner and that I need Jesus Christ. See, I had a false belief. There's all kinds of false beliefs. And uh, we need to make sure that a false belief is not what keeps us from heaven. Sometimes sinful Christians can be an obstacle. People that, oh, they say they're saved, but they don't live for God. And so people often will point to that, and they'll say, oh, those hypocrites. Now, I know there's hypocrites in that church. You know, when I've, I've heard that before, and I think, 
I want to ask, and I probably will the next time. I probably shouldn't, but I probably will. Next time somebody says, well, there's hypocrites that go to that church. Well, where should they be? You know, if they're hypocrites, they need to be in church, right? <laughs> so don't tell me that you don't go because that's, they're, they're hearing it and not obeying it. Well, you're not even hearing it. You know, that, that's where they should be. But sometimes sinful Christians who get in the way, sometimes it's our pride that's an obstacle. We're afraid of what others would think. Sometimes it's our sin that we don't want to give up a certain behavior because we think, oh, if I, if I come to God with my life, that he's going to make me change. He's not going to make you change, but he's probably going to ask you to change. He's going to ask you to, and you're going to have to make that choice. But there were obstacles in his life. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In Matthew chapter 18, he says that the kingdom of heaven is like the little children and that we need to become as little children to come to him. We need to come in our simplicity. God doesn't want us to try to earn our way to him because he can't. God wants us to simply come to him by faith and trust what he has to say. And that's where Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was simple about this. So we see that there were obstacles. We see there was an opportunity. But last, I want to show you that there was obedience. This is my favorite part of the message. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Notice it says, and he made haste and came down. Jesus called him and said exactly those words, make haste and come down. And the next verse says, and he made haste and came down. I like how, how God makes it exact. Zacchaeus said, he wants me to come down? I'm coming down. You know, if I, were, if I were somewhere to see a president, and he pointed out in the audience and said, you, you with the, I don't know, the orange tie, come up here. Man, I'm not even going to look at my tie. I'm just going to go. <laughs> and if, if, if I don't have an orange tie on, maybe you'll, maybe you'll still take me. You know what I'm saying? You hear something like that, you're going you're gonna to obey immediately. And when God calls you, you need to obey immediately. When God speaks to your heart, oh, it won't be an audible thing, but it's just that, that understanding that God is talking to you and God is calling you to himself. You need to obey that every time. But he said, it says immediately. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We're told not to boast ourselves of tomorrow because we don't know what a day may bring forth. Uh, Two years ago, I was preaching at a camp here in Illinois. And on the way to the camp, um, the camp director said, there's something you ought to know. He said, we have a, a young lady working at the camp. She's in high school. But um, just two weeks ago, her brother was at a youth event. And uh, he's 18 years old, graduated high school, about to, about to go to college. And he was driving home. And he turned in an intersection and never saw a semi-truck coming and, and died instantly. And he said, you should just know that just because there's some, there's some other kids here that knew him, but his sister's here, so she feels kind of raw about that. And I thought about that, and I thought, man, it, it, it just doesn't seem like it should happen. It doesn't seem like an 18-year-old should die. Where our, our church back home, uh, there's some grandparents that they're, and, some, and, and their, their son and daughter-in-law go to church there, and, and their other son's son died this week. He's 17 years old. I don't even know all the details of it, but you think about that, and it's, that's tough. That's tough to deal with, but it needs to remind us that life is short, that life's a vapor, that I don't know about tomorrow. I don't know if I have that. I, I told you earlier this week that another friend of ours died. He literally went in the hospital, went on a trip, went in the hospital with leukemia and pneumonia. Didn't know he had either one of them, and three days later, he's dead, and he's in his 30s. 
you know, those things, I, I look at that and I say, you know what, tomorrow I, I might feel bad and go to the hospital and, and never come out. I, I don't know that. I'm not saying that to scare people. I'm saying that to, we need to look at reality and say, I don't know about tomorrow. And so he said, look, he called me down. I'm going to do that obedi obediently and immediately. And Jesus cared about him. He says, I, today, I must abide at your house. You know, I, I need to go spend some time with you. You know, that's, that's special when someone says, hey, I want to spend some time. Let's go get a coffee. You know, I don't know if that was, maybe they had coffee. I don't know. But he says, I need to abide at your house. I want to be a guest at your place. These other people don't care about you, and they don't like you. But Jesus says, none of that stuff matters to me. Oh, oh you're a publican? I don't care. Oh, you've taken something falsely? We can deal with that. We can forgive it. But he says, I, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus cared for him, and Jesus changed him. Notice this. He, he, and he made haste, verse 6, and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything by, from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Now, how does this happen? Because a day earlier, Zacchaeus was probably falsely accusing people. A day earlier, he was doing wrong. Because when you come in contact with God, he changes you. You don't have to change to meet God. God changes you. God doesn't want us to try to be right with him. No, when we come to him, he changes us from the inside out. So immediately he was, something was different. Something was different. And how did that happen? Well, the next verse tells us this. Jesus said unto him, this day salvation has come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. He said, so salvation has come to this house. I have saved him. I have changed him for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Now, you might look at that and you'd say, well, that's because uh, he's a Jew. He's a son of Abraham. That's not what Jesus was saying. He is a Jew, but that's not what, that, that's not what he's meaning by that. Every Jew would look to Abraham as their father. And they would look to Abraham as one who was a friend of God. But they would also look to Abraham as a man of faith. Because remember, God told Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him on this mountain. Now, it was a, a test for Abraham. He never intended for Abraham to kill his son. But when he gets up there and he's about to do that, he says, Abraham, no, I have provided a lamb for you. I don't want you to do this. It was a test of your faith. But because you have believed me, because you've expressed your faith in me, it's counted to you for righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is, I see you as a righteous person because you believed me. Not because you tried to earn it, because you can't, but because you believed me. What has happened here is, is Zacchaeus has placed his faith in Jesus. He says, you are the one. You are the Messiah. Because of that, he's a son of Abraham. He's one who is of faith. He is one who is of faith. He is righteous. He is righteous because of the faith, and that faith, is always expressed in obedience. Why did Abraham go to the mountain? He is obeying God because he believed him. Now, I like to use the story of Noah because, uh, because we can see faith and obedience together. Why did Noah build the ark? Because he believed that water was coming. Because he believed what God had said. That's why he did that. 
Now, why do you obey God? You obey him if you believe him. And when God says, when you believe me, I look at you as righteous. And that will begin to change you. He says, look, if I've accused anybody, and I'm sure he had, he says, I will restore them. He wanted to get right with people. See the change that takes place? He wants to get right with people. That's what will happen in our lives, that we will want to restore relationships. We will want to make things right because of what God is doing on the inside. Somebody said he went up the center, went up the tree a sinner but came down a saint. It was that immediate belief, that immediate obedience when he came down and said, yes, I'll do that. He wanted to restore. Now, today you have an opportunity. An opportunity. Maybe some of you, I'm sure many of you, have already taken the opportunity to come to Christ. You've taken that opportunity to receive him as your Savior, to ask him to forgive you of your sins, and to cleanse you. And he will. And maybe you've never had that opportunity, but tonight that's the opportunity that we're extending. I do this in almost every service, everywhere I go. We want to give people the opportunity to respond to what God's Word is talking about. And God's word is not just talking about Zacchaeus. This, this, to seek and to save that which was lost, every single one of us is born into this world lost. And he has come to this earth and he sends us his word so that we can have a relationship with him. And we want to give you that opportunity tonight. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, we do that because we, we want to respect you. We want you to be uh, comfortable but we want to give you that opportunity. And maybe you sit here tonight and you say, you know, I, I do. I, there's never been a time where I've come to Christ. There's never been a time where I came into a relationship with God. You know, that relationship is him forgiving you of your sins and coming to live inside of your life. That's what God wants to do. Maybe you'd say, I've never done that. There's never been a time where I've trusted Christ as my Savior and, and asked him to save me. But that's something that I would like to do tonight. If that's you, would you just raise your hand anywhere in the auditorium? I won't say anything, or I won't, won't point you out, but maybe you'd raise your hand and say, that's something that I would like. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I've ne never asked God to forgive me of my sins. Well, here's what I want to tell you. Maybe you didn't feel comfortable with raising your hand. Maybe you did raise your hand, and I just didn't see it. But maybe you'd, you'd uh, like to do that. Uh, it's as simple as ABC. A. Admit before God in prayer that you've done wrong before him. I think we can do that. A, admit. B, believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. That he paid for those sins and he rose again to give you new life because he's the son of God. I think you can believe that. You know, there's a lot of people that can admit they're sinners. There's a lot of people that can believe. But here's the third thing. He said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just because you admit and believe doesn't mean you're going to call. Doesn't mean you're going to obey him. And that's what he asks you to do. Would you call on him to do just that? Would you call on him to save you? And just a word of prayer, you can talk to God and admit and believe and ask him to save you. And I'm going to give you just a few seconds to ask God about that tonight. Maybe you just prayed something like that and you asked God to forgive you and save you. And you would say, you know, preacher, that's what I've just done. Could you just raise your hand and testify? I've just prayed that prayer. I've just talked to God. Okay, I see a couple of hands. All right, I see that. You know, that's a promise that God made that he would save if you called. So what God has worked in your heart, and he's changing you from the inside out. Feel different. Feel doing something different in your life.
you know what, I'd encourage you, as if, uh, if you know someone in this church, if someone invited you, if you rode the bus, or you know somebody else that you would like to talk to and feel comfortable in, it would be good for you to tell them the decision that you've made. Dear Father, I thank you for the work that you do in hearts, and I pray that this word, your word, would continue in hearts, and that the things that were said tonight that, that are needed, that they would be remembered. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, would you stand to your feet as the hymn of invitation begins to play? If you've made a decision or there's other things that you would like to pray about, this is the time to do that. Maybe you'd like to pray where you are. Maybe you'd like to pray at the front. Maybe you'd like to talk to somebody about a decision you'd like to make. I do want to say that even after an invitation is over, you can still make decisions. It doesn't, there's nothing magical about this time. But there is something logical, an opportunity to make a decision after the information has been presented.